good morning, church. Let's stand together and let's lift our voices to him. Men sing, the women echo. I will worship. I will worship with all of my heart. With all of my heart. And I will praise you. I will praise you with all of my strength. All of my strength. I will seek you. I will seek you all of my days. All of my days. I will follow. All of your ways, all of your ways, and I will give you all my worship. I will give you all my praise. You alone I long to worship. You alone are worthy of my praise. I will bow down. Hail you as King. Hail you as King. I will serve you. I will serve you. Give you everything. Give you everything. I will lift up. I will lift up my eyes to your throne. My eyes to your throne. I will trust you. I will trust you. Trust you alone. I will give you all my worship. I will give you all my praise. You alone I long to worship. You alone are worthy of my praise. I will give you all my worship. I will give you all my praise. You alone I long to worship. You alone are worthy of my praise. All right, you may be seated. Hello, it's so good to see you this morning. I have the wonderful opportunity to introduce to you guys Emma Catherine Chavaria. Now, with her mom, Dana, you guys always get to hear her on the organ, her dad, Adrian, and then you'll see with them a big family, and the reason is they have a lot of support. And I'm sure that you guys recognize Grandpa because he's here every Sunday with us. And then also you'll see that Dana's parents are here, and then also Adrian's mom is able to be here. His dad is teaching Bible study today, right? He has Bible study duty this morning, so he's teaching that. When they picked the name Emma Catherine, they picked a name that, that was named after the grandmother, after Dana's grandmother. It's a name that brought wonderful memories of a lot of love, a lot of gift, and a lot of God's hand and his presence. And when I asked them about a verse that they thought was really important, they said, you know what, we want this girl to have joy. We want her to have peace. So we're going to pick a verse out of Philippians. And they picked the Philippians verse, Philippians 4, so that with her would be great joy, would be great love, and God's hand would be upon her. So there will be a time I'm going to ask the family a number of questions, and then there's going to come a time when I ask you as a church family to um, uh, to uh, respond as well. And when I do, if you would just respond by saying we will, that would be fantastic. 
So I'm going to ask the family, do you acknowledge Emma as a gift from God? We do. We do. Do you commit yourselves to live a godly life before Emma so that she will have an example to follow? We do. We do. Do you commit to give Emma every opportunity to hear the gospel of grace so that she might be able to have a personal relationship with Christ? We do. Does she not have the best eyes you've ever seen? She is so cute. Do you commit to raise her in the instruction and discipline of the Lord? We do. Adrian and Dana, we have heard your vows and we joyfully um, lift Emma to the protection of God for all the years of her life. May the beauty of the Lord be upon her. May it be upon you and your family and your home. And may you continue to grow in grace, love with each other, and, and love with our Heavenly Father. So church family, the privilege of parenthood is made so much more meaningful when you're able to know that you have other people that are supporting you, that are moving towards that same um, Christian direction and lifting, uh, lifting them up in prayer. Will you, the University Baptist Church family, provide strong Christian teaching, training, and example for them? Thank you very much. Jeremiah, will you come up and pray over them, please, sir? Thank you. day such a meaningful day and we are so excited to share this with you all so let me pray over you father what a beautiful thing to behold to see um, a loving family that is coming and bringing their precious possession before you father as we look and we see at these pictures on these screen this is a, a new life filled with joy a life filled with peace and purpose we we celebrate Emma and in the family that she has been given through your sovereign grace. And we pray, especially for Dana and Adrian today as, their, as her parents, that they would be able to move forward in these words of affirmation that they've committed to today with the presence of, of their church family, with their extended family, so that Emma would grow in an opportunity to be transformed and changed by the grace that you extend. So we do, Father, we pray that you would guide every step, that Emma would grow through this life and have a chance to come to know just the powerful work of the gospel that she would be changed by it, she'd be transformed by it, she would become an amazing vessel to proclaim your good news <clears throat> to the people in her life, that she would be able to, to find those truths in a solid foundation at home, uh, that she would live in a loving family that allows her to see the good grace that you extend <clears throat> on a daily <clears throat> and regular basis. And so we are grateful for this day. We, we come forward before you as a church family, lifting them up and her family, supporting them, in uh, acknowledging that we want to glorify you through the life of this precious child and to see her grow in a manner that glorifies you in every single step in every single way. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. UBC family and uh, friends, I just want to tell you, it is so wonderful to be in worship with you today. My name is Caroline Poe. I'm the Minister of Education here at University Baptist Church. And if you happen to be a guest with us, with it inside the worship guide, we have a guest registration that we would ask you to fill out. And then whenever the offering plate comes around, if you would put that in the offering plate, there are things that we would like to know how we can pray for you, how we can lift you up, and how we can support your family, whether this is your first time to visit with us or you have have come many times. We love having you as a part of the University Baptist Church family. Let's stand, let's welcome one another, and if the children would come forward for children's time.
give thanks, give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever, for He is good, He is above all things. His love endures forever, sing praise, sing praise. The mighty hand and outstretched arm his love endures forever for the life that's been reborn his love endures forever sing praise sing praise sing some questions to ask about friends. I wonder if I see any experts. Do I, are, are there any experts here on friends? Are there any, do, do any of you guys go to school? If you go to, yeah, then y'all should kind of be, okay. Now tell me, what makes a good friend? Um, well, being nice to others. Being nice to others. And if I'm right, are you standing next to your best friend? Yes. Okay, now you tell me what's a good thing about a friend. Being his friend. Being his friend. You know what? I think you're standing next to your best friend too, aren't you? Now, Abigail, can you tell me what's a good thing about what makes a good friend? Being nice to them and helping them when they're hurt. Ooh, good answers. Helping them when they're hurt and I don't know. You know what? That's still a good answer. Very good. You know what? I think that whenever, for some of you guys, oh, please don't sit on that. For some of you guys that um, are in classrooms or in Sunday school rooms or see other people, you know what? Is everybody around you always nice? Yes. I, oh, no, not always. Does, not always. Does everybody around always help whenever you're hurt? No. No. Do some people be really nice? Do a lot of people be really nice? You always are. Very good. Do some people tend to be helpful whenever you're hurt? Yes. Yes. You know what? The communities that God puts us around, sometimes they're communities in our family. Sometimes they're communities at school. Sometimes they're communities like on a soccer team or on a baseball team. There's always going to be some people that are our best friends, right? And there's always going to be some people that help us out. And you know what? There may even be some people that aren't so helpful. But God's requirement on us is always the same. God's requirement on us is that we love those around us, that we show them God's love and goodness, even when they don't show that to us. 
And sometimes we have to be understanding of other people because God um, may be working on them in a different way than God's working on us. And you know what? Sometimes there's ways that Miss Caroline needs help growing and I'll have somebody come around me and they'll say, Miss Caroline, you need to work on this. This isn't so good. And you know what? Sometimes there might be some way that I could do that for someone else too. But the best way to do that is by lifting them in prayer. So I want to encourage you to lift those people in your class in prayer, lift those people in your Sunday school in class in prayer, and make sure you lift up your best friends in prayer too, because that's always God's way. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for those opportunities we have to pray for each other. Father, we thank you for those opportunities that you have given us to learn both how to be a good friend and how to be a better friend. Help us to be patient with those that you put around us as well. Help us to show your good love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. 
Hello. Hello, everybody. My name is Zach Prater. I'm one of the youth that went to the Chicago mission trip. Me and seven other youth and four adults went to Chicago and we volunteered at three homeless shelters and one after school program. One of the homeless shelters we volunteered at was the, is the largest one in America. It's called Pacific Garden Mission. They house over, I think, 700 males and 400 females there every day. I'm gonna share my two favorite memories that I had on this trip, and there were a lot to choose from. My first memory was whenever we were at Pacific Garden Mission, and there was a man there that was deaf. He couldn't hear anything like that, which is, well, what being deaf is. But we had someone that could speak sign language, and she was just incredible how she was able to minister to him and speak to him, and seeing his face just lighten up because he could actually communicate with someone was just incredible. My second favorite thing was whenever we were at the after school program, there was a little kid named Charles. And the first couple of days he, he was outgoing, he always hung out with me and I just found it really cool. And then the rest of the days his, his homeboys were there and he wanted to be cool and hang out with them. But every single day he'd get the crafts and he would go home and he would make it. And then he'd ask me about it the day after. On the last day, the day before we left, he ran up and hugged me and he said, I'll miss you. Please enjoy the video. You're not the only one who feels like this. Feeling like you lose more than you win Like life is just an endless hill you climb You try and try, but never arrive I'm telling you something, this racing, this running Oh, you're working way too hard And this perfection you're chasing is just energy wasted You know the one that holds your soul Cause mercy has called you by your name Don't be afraid to live in that grace
Amen. Let's stand up and let's continue in worship as we sing. We're going to sing Love Lifted Me. Let's sing together. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now save Master of the sea, billows his will obey. He, your servant, wants to be be saved today. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Savior I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy, I am telling. He made all the darkness depart. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Oh, what a standing is mine, and the transaction. 
salvation so quickly was made when as the sinner I came took of the offer of grace he did proffer he sang me all praise his dear name heaven came down and glory filled my soul when at the cross the Savior singing. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Casey. Thank you for leading. So if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, may your Holy Spirit be in our midst today. Father, more than we need anything else, we need your presence, and so we have declared these praises with our voices. We've reflected on journeys that you've led us on. We've celebrated the gift of family. And all of it, Father, is to stir us greater towards the love that you have for us. So come in and open our hearts and our minds to who you are, that we may love you more fully, just as we are fully known. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. How is everybody? Good, man, it's good to see you all this morning. It, it, it's really hard to believe for me in many respects that today kind of marks the nearing resolution of this series of key convictions, a journey that we've been on since the beginning of the year. Now, I still anticipate that at some level next week, we will do somewhat of a recap and a summarization as we try to reflect on all that we've discussed. But let's continue with this final word of a key conviction today and discuss the importance of having a loving community. That's the focus. That's the discussion that I want us to continue on today. You know, community is something that we all aspire to. 
All right, community is this idea that we gather together with some sort of affinity, some sort of commonality that makes us distinct, right? We're set apart from other different things. And, and we find community for a whole lot of different reasons. Find community based on the neighborhoods we live in, the, the schools we attend, the, the churches we go to. I mean, they're all different things that help justify community and why it is that we gather together. And so community is a, an important topic. And it's one that I want us to explore extensively today, but, but I don't want to just look at the essence of community, but what does it mean to have a loving community? Now, this is going to be somewhat of a challenge because we have two really broad, significant topics that we're going to try to wrestle to the ground a little bit today, love and community. And, and we really can't be as exhaustive as we would maybe like to be on those two topics because we just don't have the time. So my intention is to look at the essence of love and why it's so important, but primarily through the lens of community, okay? Now, another reason that it's going to be challenging is because those two elements, love and community, are somewhat elusive in our culture, right? We, we don't really have a great grasp of them like we used to. Let's, let's think about love, for example, it's, it's not hard for us to see that our culture kind of has a distorted view of love, correct? I mean, it could be the things that we see online, the apps that occur on our phones nowadays, the shows that we can watch on TV. There are many examples that show our distorted view of love. Uh, the Bachelor, for example, would be a great example for us today. Let, let's start there, if you don't mind. I'll never forget the first time I saw the show The Bachelor. Uh, Jennifer and I had been married about a year. And we had moved out to California for me to go to seminary. And being the fact that we had our roots in Oklahoma and Texas, we were desperate for friendship. We wanted community in some capacity. And, and so thankfully, uh, we met Derek and Alicia Thompson, great people, to, to this day, some of our best friends. We, we don't keep in touch as much as we should, but no doubt during those years in seminary, they were our closest comrades in so many respects. Now, Derek and I clicked, obviously, because we were in seminary together. We, we had the faith connection. But beyond that, we were both pretty severe sports enthusiasts, okay? Now, you wouldn't have thought initially that this friendship would have worked because me being from Texas, I was a diehard Cowboys fan. Can I get an amen? Right, thank you very much. Now, Derek, however, was from the East Coast, and he was a Redskins fan, okay? And still is to this day, so pray for Derek, okay? He's still walking in darkness. It's really sad. And so you wouldn't have thought that we would have had commonality over sports, but we lived on the West Coast and we were subjected to West Coast scheduling. So we had to watch the Raiders and the Chargers and the four. We didn't care about those teams. And so Derek had this great idea. He said, hey, what if we, we split the subscription to the NFL Sunday ticket so we can just watch every football game? That way we can see the Redskins when they play. We can see the Cowboys when they play. Well, I didn't need any convincing. I mean, I didn't need a sell. I'm in, man. Let's do it. And so we, we invest, we split in this, this subscription for the Sunday ticket. And so every Sunday, not only did we get a chance to watch our own teams, but we pretty much just watch every football game the entire day. I mean, this was before kids, okay? So this was when I actually still had a life of my own. This was the golden era of fandom for me, okay? It was beautiful. I could come home from church and just watch football all day. Now, what I didn't realize in the moment was that Derek and I, as much as we were enjoying it, we were kind of subjecting our wives to having to watch football the entire Sunday. And, and since we were newlyweds, they really emphasized the importance of compromise. And so as they got tired of it, they began to enter into a no negotiation. And they said, you know, we have to watch football the entire Sunday. You guys should pick a night of the week where, where we have, you have to watch a show that we want to watch. Okay, so we kind of agreed to it. And little did we know, their choice was The Bachelor. 
okay? Now, we were less than thrilled about this decision. There was no part of us that wanted to watch The Bachelor in any respect. And so our approach was to make fun of it. We wanted to have this watching experience be somewhat miserable for them so that maybe they would let us out of this agreement. And so we start watching the show and we're just, we're making fun of it. I mean, all the commentary, this is so fake, this is so scripted, she would never do that, what are we watching? I mean, we're just trashing the show. But little did we realize that over a couple of weeks, we actually kind of enjoyed trashing the show. It was something we started to look forward to in some respects. And I'll never forget one day we were in class and as was often the case, you were in class for a couple of hours and then they give you like a 10 minute break in the middle. And, and so the professor had just put us out on a break and, and I'm outside, I'm talking to a buddy of mine and I see Derek walking up to me and he's kind of got this spring in his step and this excited look on his face and he walks up to me and he goes, hey Jeremiah, what do you think's gonna happen on The Bachelor tonight? And before like, I could even process that that was an inappropriate question for one man to ask another, I answered him. And I was like, I don't know, I think Sarah's going home, but I hope she gets a rose. And we were talking about The Bachelor. And all of a sudden I had this clarity. I was like, oh goodness, change the subject quick. Cowboys, Redskins, something else, okay? And so I'd like to say that we've outgrown that, but here we are 10 years later and we still watch it. It's sad, pray for us, right? Uh, now, it doesn't matter if you've seen the show or if you pretend like you haven't seen the show, we all know that The Bachelor is a terrible portrayal of love, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's such a warped concept. And, and now we know it's entertainment and it's fine to laugh at it. But, but let's be honest, the idea that somebody can date 25 people on national television with producers and cameras being stuck in their face and somehow fall in love is a joke, right? I mean, that, that's not true. And yet our, our culture seems to promote that idea. And, and we don't even just see it in the TV shows that we watch. We see it in the way that we use our words, right? Like in one breath, I can say I love football and I love TV shows. And in the next breath, I can say I love my children and I love my God. That's not the same thing. There's no way that those are the same thing. Love is such an elusive term. In fact, if we were to get on dictionary.com and just type it in, you know what you'd see? You'd see somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 different iterations of the definition. And we, we don't really know what love is. It's elusive. Now, one of the common themes that we find with the pursuit of love and one of the things that compels us to drive it is fear, right? We're, we're afraid of something. We see love as a remedy to fears. Right? We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of loneliness. We're, we're afraid of insignificance. And love, we see to be as a remedy for those fears, and so love, in some respects, though we don't really know what it looks like and we, we have these um, warped senses of approach to pursuing it, we all know that love, in some ways, drives out fear. And that's why we pursue it. So in addition to love being a complicated subject, so is community. And community is something else that we have also struggled to, to really cultivate in our culture. In fact, it, over the last four or five decades, um, it has been more and more threatened. Right? There's been more and more isolation. I was reading about this not too long ago, and Pascal Emmanuel Gabri uh, wrote an article back in February, and he, it was a, an article in the magazine publication, The Week. And, and here's what he articulates. He, he, sh uh, he shares with us what it is that is, is kind of growing and threatening some of the elements of community, and what are the, the manifestations of that? What are the, the, uh, the results of it? Here's what he says. <clears throat> he says, for decades... Loneliness has quietly been on the rise in America. Now, traditionally, America was known as a society of joiners. Not only churches, but lodges, fraternal organizations, civic society groups, PTAs, 
kids' baseball teams, Boy Scouts, fraternities and sororities, you name it. This was a uniquely American thing. Right? This is kind of in the fabric of our DNA. We want to join things. We want to find community. So he says that, but he's acknowledging that that trend has reversed. That Americans are more divorced than ever, less church than ever. The sociologist Robert Putnam chronicled in The New American Loneliness in his book, Bowling Alone, which shows the declining trend of membership in all social organizations, from labor unions to PTAs to fraternal organizations to volunteering with the Boy Scouts and the Red Cross. I actually got this book, and he's, he's right. It, it's this chronicalization of, of all the diminishing affiliation that we see across the board. Right? These organizations have decreasing numbers of membership. Many are having to shut their doors. The, this joiningness of American society is diminishing. Here's why that's significant. He says, a 2014 study by the National Science Foundation found that one in four Americans said they have no one with whom they can talk about their personal tri trials or troubles or triumphs. One in four. Nobody that they feel like they can talk up to. The number doubles to more than half of Americans if immediate family is not counted. So more than half of the folks in our culture today feel like they have no one outside of their immediate family that they can share their troubles and their triumphs with. It's this increased isolation, this increased feeling of loneliness. Now, here's why that's problematic. He says, you know that one of the most common consequences of persistent loneliness is distrust. Distrust of outsiders, which is everyone when you're lonely. And that distrust can quickly and easily shade into anger. So his point is this, loneliness is on the rise, which is giving um, a, another prevalence to distrust. And the more we distrust people, the more we become angry. And, and that seems to be pretty prolific in our culture. Trust is essential to community. There is another article that I stumbled across this week in researching this, written by Josh Morgan. And, and he talks about how trust is the very glue that brings the fabric of society together. Right, that when you find an organization or a community that trusts each other, you see all these benefits that come from it. He says, practically all researchers studying trust have concluded that it improves the human experience. Trust is what gives rise to flourishing humanity. However, we are living in a society where that trust is becoming more and more threatened. There was another article by Janice Shaw Caruso in spectator.org, and she talked about the fact that because we have such a radical idea to individualism, where everything needs to be built on self-sufficiency and self-reliance, none of these communities are truly developing. Right? We continue to grow in this loneliness, and so we look at it, and it makes sense because nobody trusts anything anymore, do they? Right? We don't trust our news. We don't trust our politics. We don't trust our neighbors. Many times we don't trust our friends. In some respects, we don't trust our family. And it's all kind of tethered to this idea of loneliness. And as a result of this distrust, we're becoming more and more angry. Right? Don't we see that in our culture, just the hostility that's on the rise and how many times people express this anger and this dissatisfaction? You know, it blew, it blew my mind. I came across two articles this week uh, about some shootings that took place. And, and, and typically, those are not anything to joke about. But what blew my mind about it was that in both situations, the shootings occurred over food. Right, there is this story of this lady in Houston that shot her boyfriend because of a taco that she was served that was too cold. So she like gets this cold taco, is angry, sends it back, and then gets in an argument with her boyfriend and accidentally shoots him. And then there is another one of this guy that um, got angry with his wife over a grilled cheese sandwich and started shooting at her from the, from the basement. Like, dude, go to Taco Bueno. It'll be okay, right? I mean, it, there are ways to get over your anger and your aggression, but we just seem 
to have it just boiling underneath the surface. And so we're struggling with community. We're, We're struggling with this anger. And so we buy into the narrative that everybody just wants to be left alone. And you think about how isolated our lives can become. We can wake up in our home, get in our own car, drive to our own office, sit at our own desk, be on our own computer, put on our own headphones, get back in our own car, drive back to our own home, sit on our own couch while we have the no solicitation sign blanketed on our front porch. And we don't meaningfully interact with anyone. And so we have this idea that nobody wants to be disturbed, but can I tell you that as I've had the chance to engage with folks around me, I I would say the opposite is true. That, That people are actually craving community. And when given the opportunity, they run to it. They're desperate for it. But the key to today's message is that it's not enough for us just to offer community. That community needs to be filled with love. Because you can still find affiliation and find community that is going to breed distrust, that's going to breed hate on some sort of level. Right? If you engage in politics right now, that's not going to alleviate your distrust. It's going to heighten it. Right? Because the hostility is so prolific. So it's not enough for us just to find community. We want to be a loving community because love is powerful. Stumbled across another article that to me was really compelling. It it documented this uh, study that was done by some Harvard grads for 75 years. And they talked about the impact of loving relationships. Here's what they said. Specifically, the Harvard study found that feeling lonely was linked with more physical illness and earlier death. Conversely, having someone to rely on was clearly associated with reduced emotional and physical symptoms, preserved brain function, and created less physical pain. So so what they're saying literally is not being lonely, having meaningful relationships, that that loneliness can create not just emotional distress, but physical distress as well. So it continues. It says, decades of Harvard research have revealed that love between humans, whether deep and abiding friendship or truly heartfelt romance, insulate the cells in our bodies from damage and destruction. Nourishing our souls at a profound level of human connectedness makes our bodies able to withstand oxidation, literally. But what's more, according to the data, marriage itself isn't protective unless it's a really good marriage, nor is having children unless one's relationship with them is truly deep. So it's not about being wealthy, having the best doctors, having relatives who live to be 100, according to the study, it's the quality of relationships, not the quantity of them. Deep levels of connection and trust are what enhance and preserve lives. We are less vulnerable to decay if we are less alone, period. That's a Harvard study, the power of loving relationships. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And so the discussion for us today is that with all that in mind, though it's a challenging topic for us to grasp, the idea of love and community, my hope is that when we begin to look at what it looks like for us, that the world would be able to look in and see not that we are a perfect people, but that we have found a perfect love. And so we're going to do that by being in 1 John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, let's turn there and we'll begin this discussion. Now there are a couple of things that, that led me to want to pick 1 John chapter 4. Uh, a lot of that had to do with the context and the history behind it. Um, in fact, most scholars would suggest that this letter was written to address division, right? That a schism had taken place within the church. That if you look through the internal evidence, you read through chapter 2 in particular, you can see that there were some folks that belonged to this community, and then they left. 
says they, they, they went out from them. They didn't belong to them. And they actually arguably started their own community and began trying to lead others astray. Now, they were teaching heretical teachings at the time, but there was a definite schism, a division that had occurred in this community. And this letter was written to try to heal those wounds, right? To bring them back and to restore them to what a loving community should look like. Now, there are three main structural points to this letter that, that I want us to be mindful of. The, the, the author here addresses that division by indicating that God is light, God is righteous, and God is love. And I want us to hold on to all three of those things because we're going to return to them a little bit later in the sermon. Okay, those are important. But the key theme was this, that it's not enough just to know those attributes. Right? We actually have to, to live in an obedient lifestyle towards them. You can't just know that God is light. That, that knowledge is tested by actually walking in the light. You can't just claim that God is righteous. That knowledge is tested by living a righteous life. You can't just say that God is love. That knowledge is tested by the way in which we love others. So it's an important theme of application and obedience. With that said, let's pick up in chapter 4, starting in verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And this is how we know that we live in him and he is in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among you so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. One who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So one of the things about this passage that I think can help us guide us in our conversation about being a loving community is that the love here in 1 John chapter 4 talks about a perfect love. A complete love. And, and like I said earlier, we, we really don't have time to truly exhaust the subject of love. But there's, there's a completeness, a holistic picture of it that I want us to try to cling to today as we seek to understand what does it mean to cultivate a loving community. Okay, now with that in mind, what I love is the way that this passage begins. Dear friends, that word even of itself is a word of endearment. It, it's actually the, the same root of agape that it could more literally be translated as beloved. Okay, and so it's a term of endearment, re-emphasizing the importance of love. But I love that it's just translated as dear friends. So when I think about uh, a loving community, can I just tell you one of the things that I want to see happen here is that friendship should flourish. I just want us to, to enjoy the presence of each other. 
Right? I mean, yes, we've talked extensively about all these other convictions, that we're going to be gospel-centered, biblically guided. We're going to be dedicated to prayer. We're going to have this emphasis on discipleship and worship and family and giving, all these different things. We're going to be committed. We're going to work hard. We're going to be passionate. But you know what? I want us to have fun. <laughs> I mean, I love that Jesus is, is so passionate, but he, he knew what it meant to have joy. He knew what it meant to, to celebrate and to, to have feast and to convene and to enjoy each other's company. And so I want this to be a place where friendship can flourish, where we can just enjoy each other's presence. One of the things I love about the early church is that it says that they devoted themselves to, to the apostles' teaching and all those things, but they met together with glad and sincere hearts in the temple courts and in each other's homes, right? So if we reduce our friendship to just spending Sunday morning together or, or Wednesday evening, it's gonna be hard for friendship to flourish, it's this, this common call through the scriptures to enjoy life together. Man, go out, have fun. Go out to dinner with your friends. Go to Steel City Pops. Man, go over to somebody's house and play games. Like we should have fun here together and we should see the joy that it is to have friendship and to find ourselves in a loving community. I want this to be a place where friendship flourishes. Now, here's what we have to guard against. We have to guard against resentment. We have to guard against holding grudges. Because the reality is, is that conflict is still going to be evident, right? We're not going to just be able to always join hands and sing kumbaya together. That's not real life. People are going to offend us, right? We're going to connect with some, uh, some people better than we connect with others. But if we allow resentment to settle in, if we allow grudges to settle in, then we don't operate in love. We, we operate in distrust. We, we operate in fear. And so... We don't need to have that here. And so one of the first things that I would suggest to, to any of us that are here today is that if there's anyone in your life, it could be a family member, it could be a colleague, neighbor, someone in this room, if there's any sort of resentment, any sort of grudge, today it ends. Today is the day you move forward in reconciliation. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have conflict, but we're not going to hold grudges. Right, we're going we're gonna to seek reconciliation. We're going to be a loving community. Not because I've said so, but because the scriptures say so. That's what it means to follow this gospel. So if there's somebody that you needed to reconcile in your life today, make that first step. Whether that's extending forgiveness or asking for forgiveness. We need to be a place where friendship flourishes. Now what happens when, when that begins to occur? When, when all of a sudden friendship begins to flourish, you know what we do? We have a tendency to get protective. Right? We don't want it to be messed up. And so we really enjoy what we have here. We enjoy our friendship. And so we start to build walls and we, we make it to be an exclusive experience, right? That only certain people can be let in. People that, that look like us and think like us and act like us. But a loving community is never exclusive. It's always inclusive. Think, think about the teachings of Jesus, right? He, he sits there on the Sermon on the Mount and he's talking about love and he says, you know, you've heard it said love your neighbor, but if you just love people that are like you, what, what credit is that to you? Tax collectors do that. Pagans do that. You need to love your enemies. You, you need to love those that persecute you. That's how you pursue perfection. Well, that's a whole different order, isn't it? See, what I want us to become as, as a church that's a loving community is that I want us to be a church that is welcome to everyone. 
Every single person is welcome here. I don't care what you bring in the door. I don't care what race you are. I don't care what socioeconomic background you have. We're not gonna care about your sexual orientation. We're not gonna care about your worldview. We're not gonna care about your background, your past, your mistakes. All are welcome here. Absolutely. And we will love you for coming here. Now here's the key in discussing that. The key in discussing that in today's culture is that we have equated love to being tolerance. Right? That, that love can never say no to someone. So this is the part where I want to remind you of the structure that we have in 1 John, that, that he's emphasizing not just that God is love, but God is light and God is righteous. So love never undermines those other attributes of God. So what does light do? Light exposes the darkness. Light reveals sin. It reveals brokenness. And, and so that's going to be an element of what being embraced in a loving community looks like. Righteousness gives us an understanding that we can be transformed. Right? That we don't have to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Righteousness teaches us that there's a path of repentance. There's a path of transformation. Right? And so it's not just that all are welcome. All are welcome to Jesus. And if you come here, we're going to also promote light. We're going to promote truth. We're, we're going to promote righteousness and transformation. And so it's not just a blind tolerance. This idea that, that love would never tell somebody no, and that if you do, then you're, you're hateful, you're bigoted, you're, you're, you're some sort of slandering remark is, is not an accurate picture of love. I mean, think about my kids. I've got a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Let's say that their favorite place to play is the street. And they love it. They want to play there every day. Now, I know that the street is dangerous. And I, I see cars go by there all the time. In fact, not too long ago, we had a truck flip over right in front of our house and come up to the curb of our yard. So to me, I don't, I don't want them playing in the street. I, I'm going to tell them no. You can't play there. Now, when I tell them no, is that rooted in judgment? Is that because I hate them? Because I don't want them to have any fun? It's because I love them. I want what's best for them. So I say, come up into the yard. I don't want you to get hurt. Love has the courage to say no. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is tell someone no, that maybe they're wrong. Now, the, my kids might resist it. Oh, but I like it here. It's more fun out here. I get to do more things. This is better. But love doesn't let them stay open to harm. So love promotes light. It promotes righteousness. So all are welcome, but in a spirit that is going to continue to embrace these other elements of God as well. Now, another thing that we see in this text is that so much of this love is, is given an undertone of the sacrifice of Christ. Right, that it's built upon what he has done for us. He is this, this perfect atoning sacrifice. And it's a reminder that biblical love is more than a feeling. It's more than emotion. It's an act of sacrifice. It's selflessness. Right? And so, so our spirit of having a loving community is not one that is going to be anchored towards a selfish position, but one of a selfless position. I remember growing up in Abilene, I, was, I grew up Presbyterian, but I was very involved in the First Baptist Youth Group. And so... C.V. Blake was at work there as the youth minister when I was there. And 
And I never forget, he used this illustration one time and it, and it stuck with me ever since. He said, you know, there are two ways to walk into a room. You can walk in saying, here I am, or you can walk in saying, there you are. And I love that. Right? So many times we build relationships with that mentality of here I am, I'm here. Aren't you glad you know me? Come, ask me questions, be blessed by my friendship, right? And we, we think this way. But, but love doesn't come in with that sort of mentality. Love comes in and says, there you are. What, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? Love is selfless. Love is not self-centered, it is selfless. And all of that also promotes the importance of vulnerability. How do we ever know how we can serve someone and we can love them if we don't know where they're hurting? See, another thing that I feel like we've fallen victim to in the churches these days is that, that we want to present perfection, right? To the best of our ability, we want to curate our lives just enough so that people can, can not assume that anything really bad is going on. And so people ask us, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Doing great. Never mind the argument I just had on the way here. Never mind how stressed I am at work, but I'm good. It's good to see you. Thank you. And we never expose any sort of transparency that says, hey, I'm, I'm hurting. So let me tell you another element of a key conviction for us as a church with this being a loving community. I want this to be a place that if you're hurting, you get loved on. Love heals. So if your marriage is broken, be vulnerable enough to tell us and have confidence enough that the church can actually help. If you're struggling with addiction, if you're struggling with with loneliness, depression, greed, whatever it is, let's be transparent and real with each other, not pretend like we have it all put together, but let's embrace each other, not in a spirit of fear, but in a spirit of love that knows there will be no condemnation, but only healing and restoration. That's what love does. See, this to me are some of the key elements. These things are some of the key elements that makes this loving community flourish, that makes it complete. Now, why is that important? Let's say we achieve all those things. What does it really accomplish? What I love about this passage and what, what drew me to it so strongly was that it begins to talk about this confidence. Right? It's one of my favorite words in the entire New Testament. It's parousia, this, this idea that's built upon freedom, that we can move unhindered with a boldness and a confidence. And it says that, that this love, this perfect love, when it begins to take root in our lives, we get to move confidently that this love cast out fear. Now, now, this is not a fear of reverence or of all. This is the fear that, that has us wanting to run from things, being afraid of certain things, that the things that we try to flee and avoid. And love eradicates that fear. Love is not a timid expression. It's a confident one. It's a bold one that eliminates fear. What does that look like? How do we that? How do we bring it out of just the pages of Scripture and into a greater understanding into what it could look like for you and me? Well, I was thinking about that, and there was one story that I kept coming to and I want to begin to close with this morning. You know, certain days are hard to remember, right? I mean, if, if I were to ask you randomly, hey, what, what were you doing on February 8th? You may have to stop and think about it. Oh, gosh, what, what happened that day? May get online, may check your calendar. It's hard to bring up certain memories. And yet other days are etched in stone. That when somebody asks you about them, you can remember where you were, 
what you were doing, who you were with, what you said, how you felt. September 11th is a day that for many of us was etched in stone for a lot of obvious reasons. It was a day of complete and terrible tragedy. And, and for many of us, we can stop and think and remember exactly where we were in the details of that day. And many times when I reflect upon it, I, I'm often drawn to one particular story that to me is, is so compelling about such a horrific day that's etched in our minds. It's the story of the passengers on Flight 93. It's the plane that was taken down in that field in Pennsylvania and what happened in that moment. You know, last year was the 15-year anniversary of, of the September 11 attacks, and so there were more tributes, there were more discussions than maybe your, your normal year. And there was an article written this time last year, September of last year, 2016, by Dana Perino, as she was reflecting upon the events of that day and actually had a chance to go visit the memorial site for the, those that lost their life at Flight 93. And so I want to read to you her article. Okay, and I, I want us to use this in a way that I hope will become an image of what a loving community can look like and how it drives out fear. She says, flying to Pittsburgh Thursday morning, I rested my head on the scratchy airline pillow and closed my eyes. It was an early flight after a late night and I could have used another hours of sleep, but I couldn't rest. Every time I closed my eyes, I pictured what the passengers and crew of Flight 93 went through 15 years ago on September 11th. I imagine a flight much like the one I was on, quiet, routine, some passengers reading, some working on their laptops until the very last second before the cabin door closes, none of them suspecting that they would die in an hour. I have a fascination with Flight 93. My emotions are mixed, awe, gratitude, fear, heartache, pride, even in some ways guilt. In all the years I worked at the White House, my schedule never coincided with a trip to the memorial site. The Flight 93 memorial isn't that easy to get to. It isn't like the memorials in New York City or Washington, D.C., where you may go on a business trip or a family vacation. No, in order to get to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, you fly to Pittsburgh, make your way through the traffic and onto the highway that takes you through the beautiful wooded countryside. As you drive up the road to the site, you see Americana at its finest. The local diner, the auto repair shop, the rotary club, the schoolhouse, and everywhere American flags. It's quiet, nice place to raise a family. The locals certainly never expected to be home on the side of the first battle won on the war on terror, but they do it with great care and are proud to do so. I encourage everyone to make the trip. It's important. It's worth it. The memorial starts off on the flight path. As you walk, you can see the markings of the planes plowing into the Twin Towers. And then huddled in the back of Flight 93, the passengers learn of the plane that hit the Pentagon. And they realize that the hijackers were lying to them. They weren't going back to an airport. In just minutes, these passengers accepted their duty and made a plan. In an act of defiance against the terrorists who hated their way of life, the passengers held a vote. I love to imagine what that was like. They decided to try to wrest back control of the plane instead of being used as a weapon against their own people. In those next few minutes, several passengers made phone calls to loved ones. Three of those calls were recorded, and you can listen to them at the visitor's center at the memorial. I braced myself when I picked up the handset. They sounded so calm. Their worries not for themselves, but rather for the loved ones they believed they may never see again. Go listen to those calls to better understand the story 
let yourself cry. It helps. And after the calls, the passengers came together in prayer, bounded by their faith and their patriotism. They defied the terrorists and ultimately lost their lives, but they saved countless others. The victims of the other three flights had no chance to fight back because they didn't know what was happening. Passengers of Flight 93 barely had time to process the news, but they acted swiftly. They were brave and selfless. In that decision, they inspired a generation, and their story needs to be told. I think about that moment, right, that here are these individuals and perhaps one of the greatest expressions of isolation we have today, an airplane, sitting there in their own world, right, focused on their own efforts, reading their own laptop, reading their own books, looking out the window, telling everyone, don't disturb me. A moment of isolation. And yet then they encounter a significant moment of fear. And what's the first thing they seek to find? Community. And they're forced to the back of the plane, and they go back there, but as they're back there, they begin to function not as individuals, but as a group. Take a vote. It's not one voice that they offer, it's all voices. And they take this fear and they meet it head on. So we use words to describe Flight 93, and we say courage, we say bravery, but I would tell you love, because they acted selflessly, willing to lose their own lives if it meant saving the lives of others. And I think about that story, and in many respects, I feel like that's what we're after when we talk about being a loving community, that we would snap out of our isolation that we would see just what is really happening around us. And when we face those fears, when we face this evil, when we face darkness, we would run towards community. And we would not operate as an individual voice, but a voice of a group. And we would be brave, we would be courageous, we would be confident, we would be selfless, we would be willing to lose our lives if it meant saving others. That's what a loving community does. They came face to face with fear and proved that love could win. And that's powerful. See, so much of this passage is built upon not our own abilities, but what on Christ has done for us. He sets the tone. So let me just say this. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what plan we develop, what programs we offer. If we don't have love, we have nothing. It doesn't matter if we study the scriptures forwards and backwards, if we pray fervently, if we're constantly seeking to make disciples. If we don't love, we've got nothing. And if we gather together and we, we value the family, we worship in a true spirit, we give holistically, if we don't have love, we have nothing. See, what we see is that love is not something that we conjure up on our own. It, is it has been given to us because God is love. Love has been given a name, and it's the name Jesus. <laughs> and so we live like he did, and we reflect on who he was. And you know what we see? We see that Jesus is patient. 
Jesus was kind. He doesn't envy. Jesus didn't boast. He wasn't proud. He didn't dishonor others. He wasn't self-seeking. He kept no record of wrongs. Jesus didn't delight in evil, but he rejoiced with the truth. Jesus always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And so to that end, may we aspire. We will struggle because we know in part, but someday we will be fully known. And so when we foster this loving community, may people look in on us and not see a people that are perfect, but a people that have found a perfect love, a love that drives out fear. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we need you today, more than ever. So let us grow in our spirit of love and determination so that we can cast out the fears of this world. We can go toe-to-toe against the deeds of darkness and exalt the love that we have found in a Savior. May we serve you fully with our whole hearts so that love would once again prove to be victorious and we can see that it never fails. For it's in your great and holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me offer a word of invitation. We've had a full morning, had a lot of things to cover. I hope you've enjoyed your time here today. Uh, Obviously, this is a time to make a decision. If there's anything that the Lord has put on your heart, if you want to join this church, and we want to receive you and celebrate that decision with you, Uh, If you want to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior and embrace this love that he offers you, then let's make that decision public. And we want to celebrate that with you today as well. Uh, If you just need prayer, if there are any other concerns that you want to put before the church, then by all means, make your way forward and we'll celebrate that together. But let's stand together and sing a song of invitation. sin oppressed there's mercy with the Lord and he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word only trust him only trust him only trust him now he will save you he will save you he will save you now for jesus shed his precious blood rich blessings to bestow Plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as snow. Only trust Him, only trust Him, only trust Him now. He will save you, He will save you.
Newton, and this is my husband, JD, and we're here to talk to you about Presbyterian Night Shelter Game Night. Us, along with Don Lane, lead this program, and thanks to Toby, who's made this possible, and all the members of UBC who have participated month after month and just poured their hearts into this program. This is really a time of fellowship and game playing that we do the last Tuesday of every month at the Presbyterian Night Shelter, and it's amazing what happens to people when you put a game in front of them. I mean, barriers just come down and, and they'll, just, they'll just talk to you. We just talk about what's going on in life and we talk about God's love and whatever's on their mind. Jenga's been super popular lately. If you're a fan of Jenga, you definitely need to be there. Candyland's a good one, Scrabble, Yahtzee, you name it, we absolutely play it. And here recently, Tim Beiser's been bringing some art supplies and that's been a big hit. I'm very bad at art, so if you are good at that, please, please join us. And you know, sometimes there's recurring faces, so there's a chance to build relationships. And then of course, there's always new faces. And so never think, I mean, it's always the right time to jump in, because there's always a new face looking for someone to chat with. So Cassidy's exactly right. You know, we're typically outnumbered there. There's a lot more that come than, um, you know, from the Presbyterian Night Shelter than we have available to speak to everybody. Um, but, you know, it's amazing what a game can do. And the last time I was there, uh, met a gentleman that was a little bit younger than me, and it was amazing hearing his story. You know, he just, you know, over a game of Battleship, he completely opened up about how his life had just spiraled out of control with um, an addiction that he had. Uh, he simultaneously lost his daughter to the uh, CPS and then he had a run-in with his dad and his dad and him got into a big argument. He was accidentally shot by his father, almost lost his life. And he said through that experience, you know, God completely changed his heart and just saved him that day. He completely turned things around for him. And before the game was even over, we had a chance to stop and pray. And, you know, it wasn't the most eloquent prayer, but it was what he needed to hear. I had the privilege to pray for him and his father and the relationship and his daughter. And so, you know, we just ask that you guys come with us and share that experience with us as well. Um, so it's going to be this Tuesday, March 28th. We meet here at 6 o'clock if you want to ride over with us or if you want to meet us at the Presbyterian Night Shelter at 6.30. We'd absolutely love to have you.
Thank you. Just one more quick thing before we dismiss. I want to remind you all that this Wednesday will be our all-church prayer effort here in the chapel at 6 to 6.30. So if you have the opportunity, please come to do that as we have a chance to continue to pray with each other and for each other. And then throughout the church, we've, we've made these postcards that allow you to be able to share with others what we plan to anticipate here for the Easter season. And we'll talk more about this this next week. But go ahead and grab a few and begin praying about people that you would maybe want to have a conversation with in your life about the good news of Easter. So that being said, let's stand together and sing the sending song. I will give you all my worship. I will give you all my praise. You alone I long to worship. You alone are worthy of my praise. Amen. Be blessed today.